Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. I have a great interview to share with you all leading up to Thanksgiving. But before I tee up our guest, I want to make sure you guys are aware of an interview I did with one of my Independent Women's Forum's colleagues, Julie Gunlock, on her Bespoke podcast. I talked about how parents can get their kids involved in the great outdoors, from fishing to hunting to camping, laid out a lot of resources there. So also check out my appearance there. It's out now on all podcasts, wherever played. Today's guest is Joe Trotter of the American Legislative Exchange Council. If you're involved in center-right politics, you're pretty familiar with this organization. For the most part, they do a lot in federalism and market-based solutions. And Joe is their director of Energy, Environment, and Agriculture Task Force. He has over a decade of policy campaign and communications experience, having worked on energy and environment issues, most recently on Capitol Hill, and serving as an on-the-record spokesperson for numerous free market organizations and campaigns. When he was in Congress, he served as a natural resources legislative assistant working with coal, natural gas, logging, and transportation industries, as well as federal agencies to deal with a wide variety of issues. He has been published in numerous outlets, and he is a sportsman. He is an avid outdoorsman and conservationist who has spent several years as the Board of Governors of the Bethesda Chevy Chase Isaac Walton League. He dealt firsthand with land management, soil science, and chemical runoff issues at the state and local levels. He is a graduate of Cornell with a Bachelor of Science where he majored in Science of Earth Systems in addition to Concentration in Ocean Sciences. And bonus, he is one of my longtime friends. So I figured, why not bring on someone I work with professionally and also who I also happen to be friends with to talk about some pressing issues of the day. Check out my conversation with Joe Trotter from ALEC. I'm delighted to invite my friend Joe Trotter onto District of Conservation. He works with ALEC. He's going to explain what the organization does, his background in conservation, his love of the outdoors, and what to look out for on the public policy realm. So, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Good to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's always great to chat with you. What is your role with ALEC and explain what your organization does for those who are unfamiliar? Okay, so we are the American Legislative Exchange Council, and what we really are is a forum for legislators to exchange ideas between different states. If there's a great bill that, say, somebody had in Idaho that they think would just do well in the rest of the country, they can come to us and submit it as a proposed model policy. And we put it through a, a subcommittee uh, full task force meetings. We do a lot of review, a lot of polishing. Um, I'll basically just make sure it's the best version it possibly can be. And then we put it out there so that legislators across the country can 
freely go ahead and pull it off our website and submit it if they happen to think that it will benefit their state. We are comprised of about 25% of all state legislators in the country and covering, on last count, I think it was 60 million constituents. So it's a great organization. Absolutely love it here. I run the Energy, Environment, and Agriculture Task Force which is great. It's it's always good to work in a policy area that you love. As uh, Gabriella knows, I love the outdoors. My background is in environmental science and a little bit of environmental policy. Uh, I do tons of outdoor work, hunting, hiking. Uh, Gabby and I have been shooting more than a few times, which is always a pleasure. And uh yeah, just a general love for the outdoors. Worked with a number of nonprofits over the years, trying to advance conservation, and happy to be doing it professionally. And your perspective is very needed. I think it's good to have another conservationist walking among us in this policy realm. So before we dive deep into some reports and writings you have, what has Alec focused on specifically challenging the Biden administration? What policies stick out, I would think, uh, for most of our listeners, what policies would stick out that you guys are trying to fight? So one of our, our just key tenets, it's it's in our motto, actually, is is the principle like advocating for the principles of federalism. Uh, there's a role for the federal government. There's a role for the state government. And I, lately, and especially over you know the last 20, 30 years, the federal government has had just an outsized role in many things that should be left to the state level. And there are actually, I'm pretty sure we're going to talk today about times where the federal government should have picked up the slack, but states had to step in. But we've lately, we've been doing a lot in regards to make just essentially calling out the administration over its fossil fuel policies um, not using federal lands as they were legally designated to be, uh, just tamping down on essential industries, uh, fossil fuels in particular. Uh, it's certainly understandable why we want to go to more zero emission, although that's a bit of a misnomer, uh, electrical generation technologies. But kneecapping everyday Americans who have to go fill up their gas tank, have to turn on their heaters during the winter, turn on their air conditioners during the summer for when the infrastructure just isn't there to pick up the slack. A lot of what we've been doing is is calling out the administration and providing tools for legislators across the country to stand up to the federal government. And how does Alec feel about the looming diesel gas or diesel fuel shortage that is Hanging over our heads, uh, the net zero policies that are starting to fail, the cost of the pump. How is Alec hoping to address those concerns in terms of, I don't know if you guys are uh, engaging with lawmakers or putting out policy papers there, but I know that's top of mind for a lot of people. How do you address the diesel fuel shortage? What are we going to do to combat these high prices at the pump? So I, we, we've had a number of policies over the years, and one of my absolute favorite is the again we just we put this out freely for legislators if they want to use uh, we're not actually out there pushing these policies we we do not lobby at all but we're we're putting out resources and one of my favorite model policies 
And it'd be real interesting to see this go to get challenged in court one day. Uh, is the eminent domain for federal lands act. Basically, if a state did not through the legislative process, uh, appropriate land to the federal government, this, if a state has enacted this into law, they could go ahead and eminent domain misused federal lands back to state control. And so that, that's just one particular tool in the kit that legislators can use to go ahead and say, hey, the federal government is mismanaging our lands. They are intentionally not following federal law in terms of doing oil and gas lease sales and things like that. So it, it's it's one of the more fun ways we're saying, hey, it's time to return power and land to the states. We've also been taking a good hard look at uh, basically a lot of the inputs into the technologies that are pushed by the big federal bills like the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, it's interesting to see that we have all these top-down mandates from the federal government saying we must go to electric vehicles. Well, electric vehicles are use more aluminum. They use, on average, about 400 pounds more of copper per vehicle than a standard gas vehicle. It require the batteries themselves require a lot of lithium, which has increased in price ten times in the last what it was two years ago. Uh, your cobalt, other just rare earth minerals. So one of the things we have been doing is sounding the alarm that while the Inflation Reduction Act is definitely a, a feel good me measure for a number of people. The reality is that a lot of the, the inputs that go into these new technologies are, are either scarce or just not necessarily located in a way that it's easy to get to in the United States. When it comes to a lot of the rare earth minerals, we're relying on China to be the middleman between the Congo or the Taliban to get a lot of oh, a lot of these raw inputs. So that's something we've been calling out as well, just as a, hey, let's actually think these policies through before we ram it down everybody's throat. So that's been a lot of what we've been working on lately. <clears throat> Interesting. I hadn't heard about the eminent domain case because I'm of the mind, I made departure from some of our fellow free market environmentalists in this regard. I don't know if we're at the point where uh, people would be open to uh, returning so-called ownership of public lands back to the states, that's a big controversy in the states of Utah and all that. And I know some conservatives who are conservationists would not want to see that. I want to put that out there as a caveat. I understand the concerns if that transference goes back um, there. So that's interesting that that case may be decided and, and that debate may return back to the forefront. But I know a lot of people may not like that. But let's talk about your energy affordability report. It's the second edition. You just put this out in late September. What did your report comprehensively understand or try to communicate rather? So uh, the energy affordability report, the, the first edition was just a, a snapshot of electricity prices throughout the nation. And we use the uh, data from the federal government and some other sources to go ahead and take a look at what electricity prices were for uh, commerce, for people's homes, industry, transportation, all that kind of stuff. 
And we had that in the first edition. But what what really differentiates this particular report this year is we also took a look at a snapshot of gas prices. I gas and I believe next year we're going to one of the things we've been talking about is uh, taking a look at diesel as diesel is one of the absolute drivers of industry all across and all kinds of essential industries across the nation. Uh, but that's that's a bit looking forward. So on this one, we we just took a look at what you know, how many miles people are driving, about how much fuel costs will will be for somebody over the course of 2022, um, and as well as just a look of the electricity prices and what policies states have that led to prices being either higher or lower. So we looked at. Uh, in terms of the actual data, the most expensive electricity in America is in Hawaii. It's 28.72 cents per kilowatt hour. Alaska is also high, 20 cents, 20.22 cents per kilowatt hour. That makes sense in part because they are not connected to the grid, the mainland American grid. But then there are the, the next few states are and they have some interesting policies that we'll get into so we have connecticut with 18.66 cents per kilowatt hour rhode island 18.49 cents per kilowatt hour massachusetts 18.4 cents per kilowatt hour new hampshire california vermont new york maine new jersey those are the states with the highest electricity prices in the nation and they all have a, a few policies in common. Uh, they are, for the most part, um, either part of the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is an interstate compact that's really just a cap-and-trade program. California has its own version. Uh, New York is also up there. In these state In these states, basically... When it comes to power plants, you have to buy essentially carbon credits. And if you're producing carbon dioxide, you, you pay a certain amount and, and there's a market for it, but you pay by ton of CO2 released into the atmosphere. And what this has done uh, is essentially force a lot of, well, twofold. In certain states like Delaware, it's managed to actually drive like the one of the the two major power plants completely out of business and shutting down delaware is actually buying a, a lot of its electricity from other states that generally aren't part of reggie um <clears throat> the other but the other thing that's happening here is the cost is is simply being put to the consumers it's just driving up prices for people who need it. Today's modern society does not exist without electricity. It is one of the most essential industries just in the world. And these policies are driving up costs, the cap and trade programs, especially. So that's one thing we looked at, something they all had in common. Uh, another thing we dealt with is the renewable portfolio standard. Do states have, once again, top-down mandates saying there must be 
this amount of power generated by this technology, be it, you know, solar panels, wind power, hydro. And these top-down mandates make energy more expensive. It's not leaving it to the free market. It's leaving it up to uh, just control by the government dictating how the market will be. And the way industries respond to that is prices have to increase. It's, it's not a free system. So we took a look at that. We also took a look at uh, net metering policies and net metering is interesting. It's let's say you have a rooftop panel, solar panel on your house uh, during the day when you're not there, it produces electricity and most houses don't that have solar don't actually have a battery. What they do is they take that energy and it sells it to essentially the grid. So what you generate winds up going to the grid. And then at night when it's your solar panel isn't producing electricity, you're purchasing power back from the grid. And there are a couple of different ways that this is, this is calculated uh, in terms of cost to you, cost to the grid supplier. When you buy electricity from the grid, you are paying residential prices. Generally, the transmission companies buy wholesale prices, and then they go ahead and transport it through their system to you, the consumer. Well, in a lot of states, when you're producing that electricity and putting it back to the grid, instead of paying the wholesale cost, you're actually paying or you you're you're essentially selling it for the price you would get it otherwise. So the grid operators are are having to credit you for a lot more money than they would be otherwise transmitting the power for. They're they're more or less taking a loss when you take into account the infrastructure costs and then the inputs here. So we took a look at all of these different things and came up with this report and it's it's pretty clear you have louisiana oklahoma idaho washington wyoming arkansas utah west virginia texas kentucky those are the states where electricity is far and away the the least expensive and in, in many cases it's almost half the cost of those top states so that's what we looked at in terms of the snapshot of electricity prices. Good rundown. Thank you. And while I still have you briefly, the two propositions. So I have talked about Proposition 30 before. So they rejected that in California, 58 to 42 percent to impose 1.5 percent increase on taxation for millionaires. And then you talked about Prop 12, which passed a few years ago, but it's now in the court of law. So explain those two and what those carry or what what weight those two measures carry so in california the the prop 30 it was designed to do essentially a tax on people who make over two million a year it would add i think it, a bit over two percent to their income taxes and that would have gone 80 percent of whatever revenue was generated there would have gone to adding uh, ev charging stations so electric vehicles and the last 20% would go to fighting wildfires. It was kind of interesting. Uh, the, the legislature wasn't super thrilled about it because the way it was done, it would have avoided the normal appropriations process. 
Lord knows that California legislators like to be able to dictate where the money goes. But it was a res- the need for it was a result of California's mandate through the the through CARB, the California Air Resource Board, and the governor who said that 90% of the fleet of electric vehicles used, or the fleet of vehicles used for um, rideshare programs would need to be EVs. Well, the infrastructure isn't there to charge that many cars. It just isn't. So basically there was this big fight of who's going to pay for that infrastructure. And Lyft was one of the primary backers of this particular proposition and it it wound up being defeated. I'm I'm actually a little bit shocked here because I wasn't sure there was a tax California didn't like, <laughs> but a- apparently we found its limit. So the question now is, we've had this top-down mandate from California. They're not willing to increase. Uh, they're not willing to take it away in order to sort of have a, a rational approach to everything going on. Uh, and Quite frankly, their grid can't support that level of EVs. They can barely make it through June with the power keeping lights on, let alone charging just almost every vehicle on the road. So it, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. It's it's a exercise in big government energy policies, but getting even bigger government. So we'll see how that winds up shaking out. The other one is Prop Thirty. Uh, or sorry, uh, Prop 12. This was a 2018 measure. It was done by uh, essentially animal rights groups uh, saying that pork could not be imported or raised in California unless it uh, housed uh, pigs in a certain size crate. Now, that particular Crate size is not used for a good reason. There's a 5% increase in, in pig mortality because it's dangerous for the pigs because generally they're able to run around and, and wind up hurting themselves. But the real reason, it was done under the guise of animal rights, but what it really was is 99% of the pork consumed in California, which, by the way, consumes 15% of all pork in the United States, basically all of these producers in other states were not going to be able to comply with that standard. And so it more or less banned pork in California overnight when when the bill came due, which was January 1st. Thankfully, this was an issue of federalism. It was a state trying to dictate how other states I deal with their own animal agriculture laws. So the, the way it was supposed to be enforced is California regulators were going to do surprise inspections in all across the nation of pork producers to make sure they were complying. So California was going to send its regulators to other states to ensure it was complying with California standard. And thankfully, the, the National Pork Producers Council and a few other people filed a loss, filed lawsuits and now it's in the, the U.S. Supreme Court. And how this shakes out in the court is, is it's going to be a real look at how uh, essentially where the limits of federalism are. So we're hoping that the Supreme Court sees the light and says, hey, 
one state can't go ahead and dictate the animal agriculture laws in other states. But it'll be interesting to see how it goes. We warn listeners here that they will try to exploit these type of laws to incrementally ban certain things, whether it's a type of farming, a type of hunting. So it's good that the courts may rectify the problem of this and maybe limit have limits on these type of propositions and their reach. Joe, if people want to connect with you and follow Alex's work, where would you like to direct them to? Well, uh, it's uh, at Alec the States on Twitter. I'm at the Trot Spot. Uh, you can find me at Alec.org. That is A-L-E-C.org, um, Energy, Environment, and Agriculture Task Force. And if there's uh, any way I can help, feel free to reach out. Thank you so much for coming on. And I know we're going to try to plan some more adventures, whether it's doing some target shooting, maybe some predator control. We need to help you get rid of some coyotes in West Virginia. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much for coming on. And and it's really, I'm really happy to see you in this position. It's It's good that we get to work in a more formal capacity together too. Absolutely. Great to see you too. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.